of Locked on Sun Prey, Locked on Podcast Network. Today's always your host, Evan Sedra. Enjoy a very special guest today's show. We had him on in the past talk about some NBA draft. We're back again as we get closer to the October 16th NBA draft. Jackson Frank has stepped back and up rocks from this day to talk about six new prospects. Jackson, how do today? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Doing great, and thanks again for coming on here. I really appreciate it. And our listeners last time really enjoyed you diving in with us on some prospects. And we're back today to talk about six of them. So we're going to go deep into some prospects here, their strengths, weaknesses, and how they could fit in Phoenix. And going off your board, which you released an update uh, last night, I believe, on your Twitter, Jackson, we're going to go just down your board of these six prospects. And the first one on the list here is one I know, Kellen Olson of Arizona Sports, very high on, and one that I've started looking to more recently because I was questionable as far as you play four in the next level because of his four-spacing value, but – Onyeka Okongwu of USC, the Florentino Lamelo Ball, Chino Hills, really made a name for himself this past year with the Trojans. What stand up, stands out to you the most, Jacks, about Onyeka Okongwu? Uh, it's it's kind of a blend of a lot of different things. I think he, broadly speaking, he do, he is a very skilled player, but he's also a really good NBA caliber athlete. So he has great lower body strength. He's uh, definitely can uh, projects well to switch onto some some guards and wings um, in the NBA. He's really quick off the ground in terms of uh, leaping ability, which you see most prevalent in his pick-and-roll game. Uh, was an awesome pick-and-roll uh, big man this year, and I think that a lot of that is because of his uh, his quick leaping and, and whatnot. And then he can also finish with the other hand around the basket. Um, should a pretty impressive post game with that. He could little post hook with either hand this year. And I really like the way he improved uh, as a passer throughout the year. Like if you look at some of his early games back in November or December, compared to, um, you know, games in, in February and then a few in March that they had, especially the last game of the year, I think, against UCLA. Um, really big strides there as a passer, which I like. And then I think he could be a solid pick-and-pop guy in due time. Um, didn't show much of that this year at USC, but kind of those are the general things that have me really intrigued by him as an NBA guy. When you look at a Kungu's defense, Jackson, is it fair to say, I know, just a care to the big man in this class, you know, Obi Toppin is the exact opposite of this as far as defense goes, but – do you think Okongwu's defense will be able to transit, especially when you look at him from a Phoenix standpoint next to DeAndre Aiden? Do you think that fit would make sense if you want to help him cover up more and take less pressure off of Aiden? I don't think that that is a great fit um, between those two. I think maybe defensively having, you know, obviously Aiden improved a lot defensively this year. Having two guys who can protect the rim pretty well and are fairly mobile makes sense conceptually, but I would worry a lot offensively um, with some of the space. You know, Aiden hasn't, hasn't stretched his, his range out to three yet. You know, Mikhail Bridges is still working his way back to being a, a really high-volume three-point shooter, even though he's he was awesome this year in different ways. Um, so I think maybe there's some defense there, but I wouldn't want to have Onyeka or Aiton on the perimeter all the time. I think, obviously, they're very good as centers, but I don't think they would be quite standout uh, mobility-wise as power forwards or four-man. Um, so it's not a fit I'm a huge fan of, but I get the thinking behind it kind of trying to insulate um, Booker especially, and then just trying to, I mean, obviously it took strides, but he still has a long way to go to really reaching a, a high-level defensive ceiling. Yeah, and when you look at uh, Kongwu's game, I know he, like Aiton at Arizona, Aiton took more shots from three, but Onyeka this past year was one of four, 25%, of course, from three, and didn't really show much as far as expanded range. He was pretty much a diver, the rim, a lot of pick and pop, or pick and roll, like you mentioned, Jackson, and obviously the defense is what you sell on most is versatility on that end, but do you feel like Nkungu is more of a small ball five next level, or do you think he could really survive as a four? I think he'd be more of a, a five. Um, he's a little undersized. I think he's like 6'10 with a 7'1 or 7'2 wingspan. I haven't seen official measurements, but um, a little smaller than you'd like for a center. Um, 
But if he was if he was seven foot with seven four wingspan or something, you'd be talking about him. Maybe his number one pick on some people's boards. Um, but I do think I, I do I am pretty optimistic about his his shooting potential. Um, you know, there's a site called Bar Torvik, and they they kind of divide up a shot profile, and Okongwu shot 42 percent on uh, two pointers that were away from the rim. Um, had nearly 40 makes on those shot above 70% from the line. Um, he looked fairly comfortable shooting some kind of mid-range thing, mid-range jumpers at times this year. So I think uh, in, the, in the right ecosystem and a team that encourages him to shoot, expand his range, he'd be a pretty solid pick and pop center. Um, but I think size-wise, yeah, you're looking at it. Mobility-wise, you're looking at a guy who's mostly a center um, and you don't want to overextend him on the perimeter too much and really, you know, let teams exploit his mobility. Even though he's good there, I don't think he's, he's not incredible there or anything. Last one on Otongwu for you, Jackson. Just you know, looking at your board, your updated board you released on your Twitter last night, you have LaMelo Ball at one, Anthony Edwards at two, Killian Hayes at three, then Onyeka at four, making up your tier one there. Do you feel like Onyeka's skills are the most translatable? Like you feel the most solid compared to the other ones in this class that he feels like a pretty comfortable NBA pro that should survive? Yeah, I would say among those, um, among those four, um, really I think all I'm pretty confident all four being – pretty good NBA players. Um, I think I've tried to amend in the last couple of years, or the last year in this draft cycle is I think guys who are perceived to have high ceilings also have high floors. That's kind of the case there. But I would say, you know, yeah, if I was ranking kind of floor outcome or result, I would have Onyeka and then maybe Killian. Um, but it's really close among the four of them. But yeah, Onyeka is a guy who was incredible this year um, at USC as a freshman. Um, was just awesome on both ends. And so I'd be really shocked if it wasn't a good um, NBA caliber player, um, even beginning as early as next year. Um, definitely should be one of the best rookies in this class um, whenever the NBA does begin another season. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think he has the, the skill and the athletic profile um, to be a really good player. You know, you just, like I said, you wish he was a little bit taller and longer, but um, just too skilled and, and has the bounce and the strength um, and the mobility to be a really good NBA player. Next one we're going to dive into on the list, Jackson, Cole Anthony, who's ranked fifth on your board. I'm very much the opposite as far as that. I have Cole ranked 18th on my board personally. I just – that the, the worrisome shooting splits, uh, I know the spacing played a huge part in North Carolina. Maybe help explain to listeners why you're higher on him than I am. But what, what makes Cole Anthony so attractive to you after a little bit of a down year at UNC? Yeah, so the I wrote a piece on him maybe three weeks ago. Um, if listeners are interested, you can find it on – Dime Up Rocks, just search my name and Cole Anthony, I'm sure you'll, you'll find it on through Google search. But the main thing for me with Cole is I just think he's going to be a really, really good shooter. Um, he was an awesome shooter in high school in AAU, uh, and he was still in the 72nd percentile off the dribble this year on 91 possessions. Um, I just had a real, ton of really, really difficult shots on a team that didn't give him any help on the perimeter. Um, I just didn't really have anyone else who could create their own shot. Um, Leaky Black was a good passer, and he was, he was, he struggled with some injuries. Same with Brandon Robinson. He was a good shooter, but um, for me, it's just really buying into that pull-up shooting. And the other thing I like is I thought he got better by a big margin as a decision maker as the year went on. I thought he was more comfortable in that lead guard role, understanding how to run an offense, not necessarily just force things at times. And then I think some of his defensive issues, especially off the ball can be corrected um, because it's not as though he doesn't try. It's, it's, it's more an understanding of how to position himself off the ball. So, um, you know, when someone drives and he's in help position to tag and try and help that drive and then we cover back to his man, he just kind of struggled with positioning himself and create, taking the correct, correct angles on closeouts and whatnot. So, um, and then it just seemed to me that he, he was, he looked more athletic um, pre-UNC. I don't know if there's an underlying 
injury there or something. Obviously, he had the meniscus surgery. Um, but yet, the, the main thing for me is improved decision making, and I just think he's going to be a really good shooter. And uh, the team context was really, really, really bad for him this year. Yeah, speaking on that North Carolina roster and just the overall offensive scheme they had in place there, what was it like when you turned the film for Clancy and you just saw, like, every time he tried to do a pick and roll or try to drive the rim, there was, like, two or three of his own teammates, like, five feet away from him. It just seemed like the roster or whatever they're trying to do with Clancy really didn't help him at all this year as far as really helping expand his his abilities, his strengths. And I feel like if he would have went somewhere else, maybe more like running the show, so to say, it would have been a better fit for him. But what was your thoughts about that when you watched more and more UNC tape? You noticed pretty often that one one teammate or another was making a mistake. Yeah, so I – so, yeah, I am well, very well-versed in, in the Cole film. I watched quite a bit of it during the year and then after the season ended. But um, I, I think the biggest issue was he, he and his teammates just never really got on the same page offensively in terms of timing, whether that be him mistiming a drive and, you know, short-circuiting a cut off the ball from someone or vice versa, you know, someone dives to the rim when he's trying to attack. Um, and so it, it was – both parties were responsible, he and his teammates, for, you know – the underwhelming season two degree, obviously, I think Cole less than others, but um, yeah, the most of the time he was playing next to two big men who couldn't shoot at, shoot from deep at all, and Garrison Brooks and Armando Baycott, and for someone who already has some burst limitations, you know, driving into a crowded floor or crowded paint, excuse me, really didn't help him at all there either. And then you look at the decision making, which you know, I guess it improved, but it still has a lot of room for growth. So those kind of confluence of factors really uh, hindered his ability to score inside the, inside the arc and um, made for some really ugly games and just possession by possession basis. It was a tough, a tough watch out for sure. From a fit standpoint, Jackson and Phoenix, what would you like about Cole Anthony alongside Dunn Booker and DeAndre? And do you feel like, cause with the, how this is trying to build this out, Aiden of course, and Booker, the high usage players, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, those low usage guys don't need many touches. Do you feel like Quinty could take a backseat next to those two guys? Because those are the two building blocks. And I feel like what we saw at UNC this year took 16 shots per game, 38% from the field. But do you feel like Anthony could take sort of sort of a backseat next to those two players? Yeah, for sure. I think the thing that Phoenix um, presents that's really nice for just this kind of crop of guards is you have a lot of guys, who, especially where they're probably going to be picking in that like 7 to 11 range or whatever, is a lot of guys who may be a little undersized for the two guard, but they're just not quite good enough to be, you know, lead initiators, but Devin Booker is a guy who's 6'6", and has proven to be really good running an offense. So um, I think Cole's a guy who could slide in there as kind of the the pseudo point guard and that he'd guard he'd mostly. He'd take kind of the smaller assignments. Obviously, Mikhail Bridge is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting defensively there on the ball. But um, I think putting Cole in a smaller role where he's focused more on his shooting and his secondary playmaking rather than this huge 25 28% usage role where he might be, uh, you know, overstimulated or – just too many responsibilities like maybe you saw at UNC um, wouldn't be good for him. So I think Phoenix is a place that's a really nice target. You know, I've, I've talked about it and other people have talked about it, that his, his draft stock slipping actually I think is better for his projection because he's not going to be put in this high usage role where he has to make every decision. And in Phoenix, they already have that guy. And they have a second guy like you mentioned, Aiton, who's going to be the interior uh, role threat, lob threat guy who can even pass a fair amount for a big man. So I really like the fit there offensively. It's just a matter of, you know, Anthony's continued defensive growth because um, I was pretty underwhelmed off the on the ball, just not not laterally quick enough to guard most guys. He had some nice sequences because he's a pretty strong guard. He'd cut off drives, but um, offensively, I do I think it's a really nice fit. Simplifying decisions for Cole is a is going to be key for maximizing his offensive value. 
looking at really any of these guards that if the Suns do draft one in this draft class, they still have Ricky Rubio under contract for another two years. And I feel like anyone, even Cole Anthony, I think especially for him would be really beneficial to learn from player Ricky Rubio for a year or two. Do you feel like Cole Anthony would probably be coming off the bench, be at microwave score six man, but having a mentor like Ricky Rubio, I think would really help expedite Cole Anthony's growth process. Do you think? Yeah, that I think that's a really sharp point. I kind of almost forgot about Rubio too. I mean, Rubio was awesome this year. I'm sure every Suns fan listening knows that already, but, um, yeah, I think a guy who's a really good decision maker there too. Rubio has always been a really impressive decision maker in my in my view throughout his career. So, if he could teach some Cole some of those reads and and how to better you know just scan the floor on a possession by possession basis, that would be really key. And then, like you said, you know Booker's the centerpiece of the offense. So if he if Cole could learn from Rubio how to play off the ball more because he's been so ball dominant throughout his career, that would be really beneficial. So I think bringing him along, bringing him along slowly would definitely. Uh, be better in the long run for him and I, I think that would be a really nice fit and like you said Rubio being a mentor would would probably do wonders for him long term and you'd see those benefits uh you know down the road whether it be 2022 or 2023 or something like that you'd be looking at a really nice secondary piece next to Booker as he finally kind of enters his prime we're going to enter into segment two of our show talking about two big men. I know I've been watching some tape on your Twitter, Jackson of Poku, Alex Pokoveski. We're going to have him as well as Patrick Williams, who I think is a really underrated prospect who really fits the Sun system here. But we're going to dive into that in a second. Before we do so, I want to remind you guys of our sponsor today's show, which is Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it is not possible to stock all your parts that you need at a traditional chain store front. So why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait for the countermeasure orders for the parts on the computer? You can go right on rockout.com from your, right at your home and right out of your pocket. You can save almost $150 on some pieces, like a pump, fuel pump assembly at Advanced Auto Parts is $150 more than it would be at Rock Auto. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, but Rock Auto's prices are the same for everybody across the board and are reliably low. RockAuto.com is also a family business, serving auto part customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Best of all, prices at RockAuto.com are always reliably low, and the same for professionals do it yourselfers. So why spend that much money? We can do so at RockAuto.com for a much cheaper price. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right, locked on in their How'd You Hear About Us box so know we sent you. It has an amazing selection of reliably low prices and all the parts your car will ever need. Go to RockAuto.com and write Locked On in your How'd You Hear About Us box. We're going to dive into Poku and Patrick Williams here in just a second. All right, Jackson, so we're back for segment two of the show talking about a couple underrated big men who the more I watch film and the more I really fall in love with them. And there's not much film, at least on Poku yet that I've watched, but for those wondering who that is, Jackson, explain to them why you have a top 10 ground Alex Pokoveski. Cause I think the, from what I saw, at least on Twitter and some YouTube clips, very intriguing seven footer who has a lot in his bag. Yeah. So Alexi Pokashevsky, uh, he is a, Serbian kind of wing, big wing, power forward guy. Guy, I think he's going to be maximized best there at power forward. And the big intrigue is he has an incredible collection of skills for a seven-footer who doesn't turn 19 until uh, December 26th of, of this year. And most of his film you saw this year was was him uh, at 17 years old. I think he, he had some kind of weird unexplained hiatus this year in his his Greek league uh, season. And so he only played four games uh, after he turned 18. And so a lot of the, the FIBA tape you saw, saw from last summer, he's, he's 17 and a half years old doing these, these incredible things. And the thing I really like about him, um, you know, you mentioned Kellen Olsen earlier and he, he commented on my big board and I just replied about Poku is that I really like, he has so many different avenues to being good. And if a lot of them come together, he's going to be really, really good. Like he's going to be a versatile shooter. He flashes pull up shooting, step backs off movement, pick and pop things like that. And then he's fluid enough to attack off the catch. 
And then if defenders run at him, he is a really, really nice interior passer in terms of drop-offs um, through traffic, things like that, because he's so tall and just really good at transitioning from dribble to pass, which is really impressive to me. Uh, you know, and then defensively, he's a really good playmaker, uh, you know, flying in for, for blocks at the rim as a weak side helper or, you know, playing the passing lanes and creating transition opportunities. Uh, my biggest concern is I'm not sure he's where he fits defensively because he's so weak and he doesn't actually move that well on the perimeter. Like he's really fluid in terms of just running and attacking closeouts, like I mentioned, but actually, you know, his closeouts are really bad and sliding is laterally sliding isn't good at all either. And he's so weak. Um, I think he'll be someone who is better in his highlight plays defensively than his true impact. But uh, I think there's still a lot of impact in turning teams over and protecting the rim. So uh, the big thing is just, he's super young and has this incredible collection of skills that, um, really give him a lot of different ways he could be an impact player and return top 10 value in, in a class that is fairly underwhelming overall. When you look at just uh, some international prospects, I know Denny Avdija, we talked about on the show before, but looking back even past his 2020 draft class, like a Dragon Bender, do you feel like he's sort of what Dragon Bender was supposed to be in 2016? Like, I know he didn't play much in Maccabi Tel Aviv that year, but it seems like from what I've seen, Poku's kind of like the more enhanced version of what Bender was in 2016. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, I didn't watch much of all uh, many even maybe anything on uh better apologies for some of my words there but uh the prep to pro uh podcast hosted by max carlin and ben pfeiffer had um a re- really good uh, international draft scout on ignacio maybe three weeks ago or so and they brought up kind of the bender to poku comps um and if i recall i think what ignacio said was that bender was bender was way far behind uh as a as a passer, and he was just a lot less aggressive. I think that's really been Bender's issue. Besides some of the translation, just really passive as a player. So I can't offer a lot of insight into that comp, but from what I what I read or listened to, and I will also direct listeners here to listen to that uh, episode to get more detailed comp. But I, but from what I've seen, is a lot more talented passer and just a lot more aggressive offensively and making things happen, which are two really key distinctions, I, I'd say. Jax, do you buy Poku's shot translating the NBA level? I know just – like you said, he had a little hiatus with his game. We saw a lot of FIBA tape on YouTube and stuff like that. But do you like his shot mechanics? Do you think he could be a player who could hit above league average from three as a stretch four? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's tough. He doesn't have a lot of, you know, data out there. You know, international standards is a lot harder to get than NCAA and NBA. But just looking at his real GM numbers from this year, uh, 32% from three, 78% from the line. His mechanics look really good to me. I'm not an expert on that, but I think the – the blend of versatility, whether it be pull-ups, step-backs, off-movement, like I said, and the volume at such a young age and the pretty uh, solid mechanics all, all are encouraging. So I, I, would, I would be very surprised if he wasn't someone who defenses had to respect uh, at kind of a median outcome and at a, a high-end outcome, someone who's really versatile and 38 39% on, on a bunch of different types of attempts, a uh, high degree of difficulty. So I'm really confident in Poku. Uh, you know, just my biggest concerns would be, like I said, kind of how he fits defensively. But the shot isn't something that I, I really worry about, despite maybe having a little bit of sample of numbers. A lot of this is just kind of looking at the versatility and, and you know, engaging based on how, how I think his mechanics project. Last one on Poku before we go into Patrick Williams. Do you like his hypothetical fit in Phoenix next to Aiton and Booker and Bridges? Like if that was their core four, so to say, do you think Poku could slide right in there and kind of be another glue guy for them? Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think he is someone who, you know, I don't think he's like, you know, you know he's not the traditional secondary creator on the perimeter. You know, like we talked about Cole Anthony earlier, um, 
but I, I, he has run, he has run some pick and rolls at his size and has the ability to pass over the top or shoot, which I think is really important. And then defensively, if assuming Aiton continues to make strides defensively as, as a kind of an, an interior anchor, which I think he will, he's the strides he made in one year are really encouraging. So that would allow Poku to kind of roam and be this defensive playmaker that you've seen at lower levels, which would be really important. Assuming you know, if you can allow him to gamble more and take risks because you, because you have a good rim protector back there. And then you have a guy like Mikhail Bridges who is so long and smart and distinct you off the ball. Um, you'd have a lot of fun, a lot of fun and valuable playmaking. Uh, defensively with, with Aiton protecting the rim there. So I think the fit is really interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just a matter of giving Poku the reps and the development system he needs to kind of realize the potential that he, he shows. Next one on the list here, he's currently number 11 on the board he released on Twitter yesterday. Patrick Williams of Florida State, a player who I really dove in tape on the last couple of days. And the more I watch of him, the more I think it makes so much sense in Phoenix as far as he's a switch versatile player. He could be a rim protector too. His jump shot, I'm buying his mechanics as far as being able to stretch and the ability to, with his jump shot, I know you've hit on this before on your tweets, Jackson, just his touch on his mid-range shots and just some of the, the creativity off the dribble he has is pretty special for a player who's only 18 and at his size. Do you do you think Williams could be one of those versatile P.J. Tucker type players who maybe has more in his offensive arsenal than a guy like Tucker? Yeah, I I am not someone who's, a, who's great with comps really, but I but I am a big fan of uh, Patrick Williams. Like He's in my second tier. He's Firmly in the lottery for me, has been for a little while now. Uh, and I think he makes a decent amount of sense next to uh, next to Aiton and, and Booker. Uh, ideally, you want him to continue to increase that three-point volume um, because, well, he does take a lot of shots off the dribble, and um, I really buy the jumper. He only took 53s this year in 29 games and had a tendency to kind of attack off the catch more than let it, let it rip from deep on catch-and-shoot opportunities for my liking right now. So I think he's young enough that you could really get that three-point rate up. It's not a huge concern, but it's still something that you should identify, especially next to someone like Aiden who hasn't proven to be a three-point uh, three threat yet. And then, yeah, I mean, I I don't think he – the issue, the biggest issue is he has really poor movement skills. He has stiff hips and is slow laterally, so he's pretty much str- solely a four right now. He's not somebody who can play at the three, unfortunately. But I do think the fit in Phoenix makes a lot of sense, assuming he can get that three-point rate up because – um, the age and the versatility as a shooter. Um, I was watching some of his AAU tape in the last few days, and he had a lot of versatile shots too, um, shooting pull-ups and off-movement stuff at like 16 years old, which again, for me in shooting projection, I think is really important, both in volume, age, and, and versatility. Those are all, or I guess all three of them, not just both. Those are all really key things for me, and I think Pat Will is someone who uh, you know checks all those boxes and um, you know, like you said, the, the weak set of rim protection is really incredible too. I don't think there are a lot of three and rim protection guys. You know, you'll usually think of three and D as the wing stoppers who can stretch the floor, but you don't think of three and D as the space floor spacers who can also protect the rim. Um, those are pretty rare, especially at the four position. You have the, the centers and whatnot, but I think for a guy who can play on the perimeter a little bit and make some defensive plays happen there, um, it's pretty unique and uh, a valuable combination for sure. From some of the tape I've watched on Williams, uh, especially against Miami and also Wake Forest, there's a couple of games I've watched recently where a lot of times he got switched on an island against guards and he held his own pretty well, Jackson. So do you buy him in like a switch-heavy system on defense like Phoenix does? They like to switch a lot more often under Monty Williams. They can hold his own against if he got switched on to a one, two, or a three. It seems like he is a versatile enough defender where he could, in a pinch, do those kind of situations. I don't at this point. From what I've seen, I've been pretty underwhelmed by his lateral movement. Um, but I've been talking with with some people. Um, PD Webb at Above the Break Three on Twitter wrote a really in depth piece about 
Pat Will, um, and you know, our friend Polar Follow, who's a great biomechanics account on Twitter, has identified that he has kind of disproportionate or muscular imbalance where his thighs are huge and his quads are huge and his calves are small. Um, so I, I think if you could get him in the right strength and conditioning program, you could improve his movement skills. But at this point, like I said, I would really try and keep him solely as a power forward right now. Um, so yeah, like, yeah, I think that's a good point. It's a fair point about Phoenix switching a lot. So I'd be a little more hesitant in terms of schematically how he fits. Uh, I think if it's better conceptually than schematically, kind of differentiated between those two. But um, I don't think it's a lost cause. I do think it's it, it would be kind of a significant undertaking. But um, I think it's something that, it, you know, given his skill and age is worth at least trying to correct because he does enough else really well and, and has, excels in valuable skills, valuable areas um, that he's worth taking as a lottery guy. Um, that's how kind of the board shakes out for the Suns. Yeah, it, Williams definitely one of the more interesting prospects, at least from the Suns standpoint. If they do finish in that, let's say, 10-11 range on the lottery night. But we're going to dive into our final segment of the show, talking about Tyrese Maxey and RJ Hampton, a couple more guards on the list for the Suns. Before we do so, I want to tell you about our second sponsor of today's show, which is Bilt Bar, the, te- the best-tasting protein bar ever. Bilt Bars taste just like a candy bar. They have 16 amazing flavors with eight chocolate nut flavors and eight chocolate nut free flavors. The bars cover 100% chocolate, and they're soft and easy to chew. The Built Bar is great for the health-conscious guy out there as well. You can lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. For example, the peanut butter brownie Built Bar has 20 grams of protein, only 3 grams of sugar, on only 170 calories. So it's a nice, tasty treat that will tide you over throughout the day. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, and get $10 of your first order of Built Bars. Again, that's $10 off your first order of Built Bars. Use promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, for BuiltBar.com. That is B-U-I-L-T-B-A-R.com. Be back in just a second to talk about Tyrese Maxey and RJ Hampton. All right, Jackson, final segment of the show talking about two more prospects and one who I know you're, you are high on, Tyrese Maxey. You have him number nine on your board right now, sandwiched right after Poku and Isaac Okoro and right ahead Patrick Williams too as well. What did you like about Tyrese Maxey's past year? Because the one thing I noticed when I watched him is that he does have a lot of clutch in his genes, so to say. Like in a lot of situations, he's the one that has the ball in his hands, either offensively or defensively, and he usually makes the right play often. But what stands to you most about Maxey when you watch him? Yeah, so my big, my, the biggest thing I like about him is I think he's going to be a really, really good scorer. Um, I think the Kentucky context was not ideal at all for him. It was the first time, from my watching at least, that he'd play off the ball a lot. He was very ball dominant in high school and AAU. So I think that adjustment kind of hurt him in some degree. But uh, really, really good burst, strength, balance. Um, you know, from my sample, he has, a, he has awesome touch on, on floaters and just at the rim. Um, good body contortion in terms of finishing. He didn't have incredible finishing numbers this year, but I think for a guard, he'll be someone, if you're looking on cleaning the glass or whatever throughout his career, he'll rank well among guards as a finisher, which I think is kind of important to differentiate among those different roles and positions. Um, obviously, centers are going to be more efficient around the rim. And then I think he's a way better shooter than you saw um, at Kentucky. He only shot 29% from three, obviously, but had really good numbers in AAU and EYBL, um, pre, pre-college sample. I think he had, like I said, kind of a similar again to Poku and Patrick Williams, good versatility, shot off screens, off movement at time, both in in college and in AAU. So I really just buy him as a really impressive score. And then defensively, uh, you know, he's really good on the ball, good laterally, strong, kind of those, some of those similar athletic traits you see. And while he didn't excel in terms of defensive playmaking, wasn't a huge steals guy, I think he had a steal rate below 2%, which is pretty – pretty low for, for college. I, I think he's a very sound defender and that might, that definitely under underrates or understates his impact defensively that you saw in his freshman year. So it's kind of that he's kind of that three and D type guard 
uh, who should be a really, really good scorer as a secondary creator and guy who can, you know, guard both backcourt positions with without a lot of uh, concern. When you look at Tyrese Maxey, he's high, he's 6'3", just under 200 pounds, Jackson. Do you feel like he is maybe a little too small to play two on the next level? Do you think he could maybe grow into a role? He averaged three assists past year for Kentucky to two turnovers. Could he be like sort of a pseudo combo guard? Like when you look at his fit in Phoenix, that might be where he lands as far as being Booker and Maxey just trade on possessions as the lead ball handler eventually. Yeah, I, you know, someone was asking recently, you know, some of the best fits for Phoenix in terms of that kind of guard contingent. Some of the guys we mentioned, Maxi is a guy I really like there. I, I was underwhelmed with his his passing vision at Kentucky. I never thought it was great uh, before college. I thought it was better, but I didn't think it was some standout part of his game, you know, like a Lamelo or Killian Hayes uh, per se. So I think simplifying again, kind of like Cole Anthony, we talked about simplifying some of his read and you know, Booker is such a good, you know, the term that people have kind of started using more recently is advantage creator. He's a guy who can compromise the defense. And so if Maxi can play off of that and doesn't have to be this huge manipulative, proactive playmaker, I think that helps a lot. And defensively, he can handle some of those, those more burdensome uh, defensive assignments instead of Booker. I think that fits really well. So I, I just, I really like that, that combination in Phoenix, both in terms of the, the system, system already in place, helping him and he helping the system in place kind of further advance Phoenix to, you know, making this march back to the playoffs in the next few years. One other aspect I like about Max, you look at his advanced metrics too, almost a 35% free throw rate, got to the line about four times a game. Do you think he's one of those players? I know Colin Sexton was one that I hit on a couple of years ago. It, it seemed like his ability to get to the line translated a little bit, but do you think Maxi could be one of those players who right away, he knows how to get to the rim pretty easily. He has a bulkier frame for his size that he could be able to draw contact and get to the line pretty easily at the next level. Yeah, for sure. I, that was that was probably one of the more encouraging things I thought I saw in the difference between his pre-college sample and his, his film at Kentucky is I thought he wasn't aggressive enough as a downhill scorer. Uh, preseason, I wrote a scouting report on him, and I said that was one of his issues is he kind of avoided contact too much and wasn't aggressive enough as a downhill scorer. Granted, my, my sample wasn't huge, but I do think he's someone who improved in that regard and should be someone who gets to the rim pretty often. Um, like I said, his burst is really, really awesome, and he's he does a really good job of kind of, you know, using subtle hand movements and gestures when he drives to, you know, deter defenders from getting in his way or stopping his path to the rim. Uh, you know, he had 20, almost 29% of his shots in the half court come at the rim, which is a pretty good mark, especially for a guard. Um, 23% were on runners, so not quite all the way to the rim, but that shows you he's a guy who's getting into the teeth of the paint and, and making things happen. So, yeah, I, I am, like I said, I am very high in his scoring potential. You know, I think some people on draft would have him, you know, fringe top four or five. I'm just a little lower on the ancillary parts of his game. But I think in Phoenix, he, like I said, he's not going to be a huge passer and playmaker. So as someone who's just attacking the rim a lot and making things happen as a secondary guy, he makes a lot of sense. Last one we're going to hit on our last prospect today, Jackson. Appreciate the time as always. RJ Hampton, who was a five-star recruit, then went overseas to New Zealand, played for the New Zealand Breakers this past year in the NBL. I'm very cautious about Hampton because his shooting production against that type of talent was not impressive to me. But what, what stood out to you when you watched R.J. Hampton this past year? Because he's one of the guys who – it's boomer bust, so to say, a guy like R.J. Hampton. Yeah, so he was a guy that I watched, you know, somewhat uh, – I, I watched a decent amount of him before he, you know, before he uh, moved, entered his NBL season. And I just really didn't like him at all. I thought he – he settled too much. Uh, decision making was poor. He didn't attack the rim. He he was weak. He wasn't an incredible passer. He, the shooting projection was just okay. Uh, and I've I've I have, I have to eat my words on that. I, I think I was wrong on something. There were definitely some 
some impressive indicators statistically that I overlooked. And uh, the thing that I like about him was he just got better in the NBL. His decision-making improved, his, his passing reads improved. He still has to improve both of those um, to, to a substantial degree to really maximize offensive ceiling. But incredibly quick, lightning, lightning quick first step, really hard to stay in front of, uh, which I think you saw a lot of in the NBL. And I think that's just something that is really, really valuable. You know, if you, the entire thing with the draft is you're trying to project guys' growth. And when you see growth like you do with RJ Hampton in the span of like a year, that's really encouraging. So you pair the improved decision-making and the ability to get to the rim pretty much against anyone because he's he's so quick. You know, you, you look at guys like Maxi and, uh, you know, even Kyra Lewis who have really good bursts in this class, but they're just smaller. Like it's just easier to overwhelm opponents if you're bigger. RJ's 6'5 or so. Those guys are both 6'3. He's longer. Uh, you know, just is a, just takes up more space every time he attacks with his stride length. So uh, the big thing there is, you know, you're just trying to, you got a lot of collection of tools athletically that you're trying to continue to mold into this impactful player. And I think you saw him take important steps forward offensively in the NBL. Looking at his defense, I know he's a little bit bigger than Maxi. He's closer to 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, Do you think he's, his ability to transit or at least stay, survive on the next level defensively, is there any concerns on that end? Yeah, I, I am pretty low on his defensive projection. I think he has a really, really long way to go there. Uh, in terms of off-ball position, I think he struggles there a lot more than even Cole Anthony. You know, I mentioned earlier, I think that's a place he could, that is fairly low-hanging fruit for Cole to improve. With RJ, I think it's different. He struggles navigating screens. He's too upright. He gets beat on the ball a lot. Um, screens are the biggest thing. Like I said, is like screens just kill him because he is so weak for a, for a 6'5 wing slash guard. Uh, he just gets destroyed on those. They they always hurt him a lot, especially on and off ball. I guess not especially, just on and off ball in general. That hurts him a lot. So I'm pretty low on his defensive projections. I had him right inside the end of my top 10 for a while, and I went back and finished up watching all of his NBL games and just was really discouraged with his defense. So he's more of a guy who's in that fringe lottery tier for me, but I do acknowledge his offensive upside. I just think there are kind of a lot of ifs that you would have to check uh, for him to reach and really be a really – uh, valuable and, and skilled wing at the next level. Conceptually in Phoenix, Jackson, if the Suns were to reach a little bit on RJ Hampton, let's say at 11 or 10 in this draft class, I don't know if he'd be able to play that combo guard role, so to say. I don't know if I buy him long-term as to Booker, but do you buy his role maybe as like a microwave score off the bench? Yeah, I think that's something that could work. Like I mean, like I said, he's going to be a guy that gets the rim. He's just so quick and is pretty big. You know, he's very quick overall, especially for a guy his size and his length. Uh, I, I think that would be something that you could you could project, um, but yeah, I would be really worried with the defense there. Uh, you know, Booker and, and Hampton long term in the backcourt, but yeah, I, I think that that type of role is something that would wouldn't surprise me at all at all if that's kind of what happens with him in, in six years. Talking about him as a really nice wing scorer off the bench, or guy guy who can just provide offense and attack the rim and make things happen and compromise defenses, which is a valuable skill. Uh, don't get me wrong; I think some people, <laughs> I think some people. Are valuing it more than I do, which is fine. Um, but it's important to acknowledge because you know compromising defense and creating advantages is a really important skill to have offensively. Last one for you, Jax. More of a general 2020 draft class question because I know throughout the year it's been pretty known, just at least from the draft writers out there, that the 2020 draft class for the years past is pretty pretty weak. I know 2019 was a really strong one, 2018 as well. The more you dive into 2020, have your thoughts changed on that, or what's your overall thoughts on this class the closer we get to the draft in October? No, I think that's a pretty fair assessment, especially up top. And then there are guys that I would probably be closer to back into my lottery or, or there in an average year. You know, I don't think in an average year Cole would be fifth on my board. He'd probably be closer to 10th or 11th. Um, 
But some of the things I do think it, it bodes well for is there's a pretty good amount of wing talent in the back half of the first round. It dies out pretty quickly in the second round, but you've got a lot of wing talent kind of in that 15 to 25 range. And then you've got a lot of backup guards you can get um, later in the draft, like Cassius Winston, Malachi Flynn, uh, Nico Mannion is a guy who's kind of still in a weird spot stock wise, but um, he could be a secondary guard again too in the right offense. So um, I think, yeah, the high end talent, which is always the most important thing for the draft generally is to get the, your building blocks, your foundation pieces like a Booker or an Aiton isn't quite there, but you have guys who can slot in on winning teams and, and make things happen. Um, guys like Sadiq Bay at the end of the first round. I mean, he's a guy who might go lottery. I, I don't like him that high, but I th- yeah, I think the wing talent at the end of the first and then, the general guard talent as a second or third guard, um, either starting or being an off the, off the bench uh, offensive orchestrator. Um, you have some you have some strong points there. Jackson, I really enjoyed talking the draft with you for the last 35, 40 minutes. You can follow Jackson on Twitter if you have not already at JackFrank underscore JJF. You can read his work as well. Talking the NBA draft over at the Step Back on Fanside and Dime Up Rocks. Jax, appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I hope I didn't uh, stumble through my words too too poorly, but uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks again.